This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hello and welcome to this final EMS One Stop of 2023. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence. And in this final episode, we're going to just have a look at the news that dominated 2023 through the eyes of the American Ambulance Association and AIM High, which is the Academy of International Mobile Healthcare Integrations news tracker. And to help me do that, I've got one returning guest and one new guest. And uh, first of all, welcome returning guest, Matt Zabadsky. How are you? Always an honor, Rob. Happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm loving the Santa look. It's great. Loving the what? The Santa look. It's uh, it, the, oh. it, the beer. It's very, very <laughs> yeah. fetching. Also, remember that uh, this podcast is available on uh, Amazon and, in fact, anywhere you get your podcasts and also on YouTube. So sometimes I'll talk about something I can see when you can't see it. Matt has an, has an amazing uh, new uh, white beard there. So congratulations on that. Also, I'd like to welcome and bring in Rodney Dyke. Uh, Rodney has been behind the scenes in our news gathering effort to, for some considerable time. And so it's time we brought him forward to introduce him to uh, our audience. And uh, Rodney, welcome. And would you like to introduce yourself and tell folk uh, where you're from and what you do? Hi, Rob. Thanks for the invite on this. Uh, it's been my pleasure to uh, help contribute to the uh, the media log, as we've been calling it, Um uh, my role is I'm the director of compliance for patient care EMS. We're a multi-state uh, EMS provider. Uh, I've been involved in EMS for a long time with multiple organizations, and uh, this is where I sit today. So let's take us all back to the beginning, and for those listening and watching that uh, we saw in the news, particularly around the pandemic time, a lot of, whether it's localities, a lot of uh, uh, areas, a lot of states in some occasions saying our EMS system is failing or there's something wrong. It must just be that local organization that's not serving us very well. And of course, that local organization then gets you know a, a lot of undue uh, bad press and indeed, you know, the politicians get involved. And we started to look at this and realized, hang on a second, it's not just that one organization. These themes are happening across the country. And so if there's one organization that's having response time challenges, there's probably a state full, there's probably a nation full. And we started looking at things like response time, the effect on of EMS in rurality, uh, call volume um, of volunteer rescue services or volunteer rescue squads, um, pay issues. Of course, they've been dominating uh, uh, the, the the profession as well. Um, staffing, um, APOT, as we call it in California, ambulance patient offload time or wall time. Uh, and of course, inevitably, what we've been seeing Closures. And so a lot of these things are, are happening across the country. And of course, we're putting this out via the good graces of EMS One. And there's some amazing news resources there. But we felt we wanted to actually focus very sharply on some very distinct categories that are causing press issues, political issues, um, or press issues and political attention to bring that to everybody's attention. And so that's where uh, Rodney and I came in. Obviously, we got Matt on board in order to not only collate but also tell our story and help tell our story. And that's really the kind of setup. Um, 
And so I'm going to go to you first, Matt, because, of course, you've been monitoring the stories that we've been gathering throughout the year. And actually, you've been retelling very effectively those stories and also alerting some fairly major news outlets to the existence of these stories. So why don't you kind of pick us up from where I just left off? Yeah, that resource, Rob, that you and Rodney and others have contributed to, but you guys really have been the engine behind doing that, has been invaluable because many of us have the opportunity to speak to media representatives nationally, locally, but more importantly, congressional representatives, others through things that we work on and educating local officials that it's not just their issue. It's not just their system that's facing these staffing economic challenges, which then results in operational challenges. It's not just one location. It's across the country. The fundamental message is that EMS across the country regardless of the provider type, hospital, volunteer, commercial, fire-based, are all facing the same challenges. We've got being able to point to a a news story where a fire department is offering $10,000 sign-on bonuses for uh, paramedic firefighters to go work in their system is very telling. Um, And and that has helped tremendously. And even when we talk to members of Congress, um, or like we've done recently some webinars for local uh, elected and appointed officials through the International City County Managers Association to say, look, here's here's the web link to the 1400 news stories depicting the crisis in EMS. This is not just your community and we need to fundamentally fix the service delivery model and the economic model. And actually you make a point there, um, You know, just coming up the end of the pandemic, we were seeing a lot of services offering massive sign-on bonuses and effectively, certainly from in my part of the neck of the woods, it was almost robbing Peter to pay Paul. We'll lose one to that service. That service loses one to us. There's no net gain. Um, I don't think I've seen so much of that in the past. But actually talking about seeing those things, Rodney, you've been kind of my statistician for the last 12 months. And you, you looked at the categories of call that we are kind of collecting. And of course, there's a collection bias there as well, because we're focusing on things that are critical, let's call it that, to to EMS. But, you know, from a percentage of the type of story we're seeing, what have you been picking out? We know that, at least from our from our gathering, that more than 50 percent of the stories uh, are related to staffing issues. Um, that is uh, what Matt was describing there uh, is cross the nation. It is is not foreign to any community. And. Uh, that would be the largest category, I would say, is is our uh, uh, ability to provide staffing. Beyond that, funding is, has now surfaced as in a major story. Uh, where are people gathering their dollars to fund these systems, regardless of um, the community it's in? It, even the tax-based uh, supported services are, are really struggling. I saw a news story today where there was a fire department in a metro area that is telling their community by 2025, we're going to be out of money and we have to merge with another department because our costs are overrunning our tax revenue. So between the staffing and the funding, uh, those have become major issues uh, within the system. And, and you know, Rodney, you're, you're being very astute there. And when you, I would say that the funding and the staffing issues are linked, right? So when you look at the percentage of the, of the local and national news stories that relate to staffing and funding, the, those two combined are 93% of the, 
of the of of the news stories out there. So you cannot separate out the staffing challenges from the funding challenges because we also have not just EMS to Rob's point, robbing Peter to pay Paul. We've got hospital systems and healthcare systems who are snagging EMTs and paramedics for you know, 50, 100% more than we can afford to pay because for those systems, an EMT or paramedic is a cheap nurse <laughs> and it's economically works for them. So I want to major on something that you both mentioned there. Of course, EMS is a business, like it or not. And we've actually seen, certainly I've picked out stories uh, of late where local governing bodies, boards of supervisors, district councils, whatever you want to call them, city councils, have had that kind of you mean we have to pay for this moment? And there's that kind of surprise that the, uh, we always thought this was a free good because ex-volunteer rescue squad always used to shake the boot outside the food line. We had this an amazing amount, you know, these amazing people, and they are amazing people that provide this service for free. That's gone. We now have to replace it with something, and there's no money in the coffer to find that something. And I know, Matt, that's certainly something you focus on. Yeah, absolutely. We've helped a number of communities transition from that that volunteer-based system to a paid system. And that's, in some cases, a tough sell. Um, but we've done ourselves a disservice because when you have people who are willing to do it volunteer, and, and I started as a volunteer, many of us did, uh, and still do it to a certain extent um, on a volunteer basis, that shifts what the perception is of the cost of delivering this service. So it, we've almost set an unrealistic narrative that now we need to unwind to say that EMS is healthcare, healthcare needs to be funded, there is uncompensated care in healthcare when you're a safety net provider like EMS, like an emergency department, and when you're only collecting 25, 30% of what you're billing because of uncompensated care, somebody's got to make up that difference if they want to maintain the same service level they've gotten in the past, which anecdotally and realistically has no evidence base, by the way. So when we're standing at the Board of Supervisors, we've got our two minutes on the clock, and it's time to start talking about saving our service. What can we tell these people, and what data can we provide to make them realise and understand that this needs some serious funding? And again, Rodney was, it has been excellent identifying when there's a tax levy or a lien or millage you know, at stake here, and we're seeing a lot more of that now, that they need to actually, you know, use those three little words all in favor to actually give us some money go ahead matt oh okay sorry <laughs> that was the rodney question oh um really no i was actually bigging up rodney for his attention to detail but it's your answer okay no problem at all um really understanding the cost of service delivery and explaining in that two minute time frame that you have and hopefully you've done a whole lot of groundwork before that two minute time frame but your soundbite has to be it costs us $1,000, $1,500, whatever the amount of money is, to put an ambulance in front of an address. We're collecting a, a third of that, a half of that, whatever it is. So if you want the $1,500 level of service, then we need to figure out how to make up that $700 difference or allow us to do some revisions to the service level. Promise you no one will die and right-size the service delivery, and you can reduce that need for that additional funding in many cases. So that brings me on to your favorite subject, Matt, that uh, no one will die. They won't be stacked up, quote, like cordwood on the steps of City Hall. 
but actually we you know you need the data anecdote gut feeling is no longer allowed ever right and rob you're a big data walk and we always say you know or you tell us you know god we trust everyone else being data every system can mine their data their patient care data with their dispatch data like we did in our system like we've helped other systems do across the country to say you know 10 percent of the calls that we respond to, of the 911 calls that we respond to, is there any type of potentially life-threatening intervention provided by the EMS providers? And we did it in Fort Worth at MedStar, it was 2%. 2% of our call volume, was there a potentially life-saving intervention? Maybe 15% got some type of advanced life support care that was something other than Zofran, by the way. And Therefore, if if we want to be realistic about how we deliver those services, getting to the scene of a call in seven minutes, nine minutes, 11 minutes, knowing that 90% of the time when you take that patient to the emergency department, you're going to have an APOT of two hours, then why do we have to get there in 11 minutes? It doesn't make any sense. Well, so... So I was going to say, we'll come on to response time in a second, because that's another category, of course, that we're looking at. But... Rodney, whatever you're going to say, say it. But also, I was going to come back to you because we've talked about how we can save EMS at the Board of Supervisors. But inevitably, we've seen a lot of closures. And so I want you to comment on that as well. So the closure, I'll start with that piece first, um, is all related to what Matt was just describing on the on the funding side. Uh, in the commercial piece of it, on the volunteer side, they're just not uh collecting the volunteers to come into the system and it's really impacting uh uh at least the perception that we've our people are going to die in the street on the volunteer side and and, and that closure side i've just pulled up our sheet and it looks as though that somewhere in the neighborhood of nine percent of our 1484 uh, articles that we have logged nine percent of those are dealing with volunteer comments and uh, the closure piece of it, um, it's it's really disturbing to see that it, that revolves around the funding side on the commercial side and on the volunteer side. They just can't get the well. They just can't get the workers there. Can't afford the insurance. We can't afford to capitalize. Or they're driving uh, vehicles that are just completely worn out. They can't get the new machinery. Uh, advanced medicine is just not there. And so. Uh, we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 5% of those articles are talking and uh, uh, re referencing uh, closure. So that's a pretty significant number. Yeah, and we've certainly identified them this, this last year as those that have closed, those that are closing, and actually a, a more worrying uh, category is those what I call on my watch list. In other words, not yet, but you can see they're circling, and actually, it's just a you know they're they're, they're one dollar or one person away from closing, pretty much, and uh, that that is a a worry going into twenty twenty four, Matt. You know, Rob and Rodney, <clears throat> elected officials and appointed officials get nervous deciding to allocate funding to a service that they haven't had to fund or hasn't, haven't had to fund to the certain level in the past. However, what we're seeing and, and what's reflected in the, in the log also is that when the community, when the resident is told and educated that, hey, this we can no longer afford to do for free or, or, or at the level we've been doing, would you, homeowner, resident, 
be willing to spend $100 a year, $200 a year in, in tax levy to fund your EMS system, more often than not, the community says, well, hell yes, I, I didn't know. Why didn't he ask sooner? <laughs> you know, um, So we need to stop being timid in, in realizing that if we take our case to the person who might be the next one to dial 911, who, whose kid starts choking, whose mother is having a heart attack, and you just explain to them in language they can understand, we need funding to maintain that service level. Most of the time, they're going to agree because it's a worthy investment. When we talk about essential service, when you stop somebody at Kroger and say, hey, is EMS an essential service? Oh, absolutely, it's an essential service. But do you know, legally, it's not. So you don't need to have it, um, but we'd really like to provide it for you, but it's going to cost you 100 bucks a year. Are you willing to pay for that? Absolutely. Where do I sign up? Stop being timid. That's what's hurting a lot of us. We just need to be bold and not be honest and say we need funding if you want the service though. Well, I'm going to um, call a pause there because that was a bold way to end. And uh, we're going to just take a second and listen to this message. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly. Serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities, Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L dot com. And we're back. And uh, in this final edition of 2023 of the EMS One Stop, we're talking about the news and the highlights and the headlines of 2023 as they've happened to us as a profession. Uh, joining me are Matt Zabadsky and Rodney Dyke. But before we get on with the conversation again, don't forget that uh, please take a second to like and subscribe uh, to the EMS One Stop on the platform that you're listening to us on, or indeed hit that big like button on YouTube if you're watching us. Remember, if you're listening to us, the advantage of switching over and listening to us again on YouTube is that you can see us, and also you can see graphs, charts, and the things that we're talking about. So there's a chance to actually see uh, the content that we're discussing. So, Matt and Rodney, let's uh, carry on the conversation. We talked about response time, and interestingly, the thing that I saw about a lot of these news stories they talked about response time was caused by a people you know talking in a silo this is just my little community we're always late it must be my system that's, that's the problem of course with that response time it's because a we were stuck at the hospital b i haven't got enough people um well those are the two primary reasons i think and so that in itself is one of the, one of the main reasons why we started doing this just to help explain that it's not just you it's all of us and Rob, I would I would put in a B one there, um, you know, B subcategory one. The other issue is that we've got rising call volume, and at least in our system, the call volume that's increasing is the low acuity calls. So you've, you've got this funding crisis, staffing crisis, hospital turnaround time crisis, and people are calling nine and one for for BS reasons, arguably. Um, and we're well, I've always to... said we do ALS, BLS, or BS. So <laughs> you might be right. And and the community expects the same response to the person that's got an ingrown toenail versus their arm cut off. And part of our responsibility 
as good community partners is to explain to them. And, and we surveyed our community two years ago when we went to a tiered deployment system and reduced our light and siren responses. And we asked the community in a public survey, should the patient who's having a heart attack have a different response level than the person who has a twisted ankle? And 91% of the hundreds of responses that we got said, yeah, they should have a different response time. Uh, okay, we'll ask people. When you educate them, they're willing to be reasonable. So this actually brings us nicely on to, you know, one of the, I asked both of you before we, we came on air, as it were, to identify, you know, the top things that you wanted to talk about. You both identified service delivery and clearly the service delivery model. You've segued quite nicely into that map because, of course, we don't need a paramedic on every truck. And, of course, one of the items in the news, I'm not going to name organizations, but there is you know, an interesting discussion going on at the moment versus, you know, the system says it must have two paramedics versus, you know, potentially the rest of the world saying, nah, you don't. So, you know, what do you what's your advice about service delivery and sorry, service design? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> when you have too many paramedics and as we talked about earlier, if you look at your system, the vast majority of the calls are managed by basic life support. One of the best EMS systems in the country that if you're asking anybody, it's Seattle. And Seattle Medic One has done a great job of educating their community and designing their system where they've got very few paramedics, but those paramedics are administering ALS care on every call they go on because they're only going on the high acuity, life-threatening calls. Most systems should really evaluate that and say, listen, paramedics are the hardest things to find, but good EMTs can manage the vast majority of 911 calls. And if you've got great medical directors and great training programs and great QA, and you can do some enhanced um, basic life support with breathing treatments and um, CPAP and all these different things where those are really the truly life-saving things, BLS providers can do that. And, and we just need to be realistic about what level of care is truly needed for the vast majority of the 911 calls. And it's not paramedic level care. I was just at a conference in here in Texas, and a retired paramedic came up to me after one of my presentations and said, listen, I'm thinking about getting certified again. Should I become a paramedic or an EMT? And I said, an EMT, because they're going to be more valuable than paramedics. Sorry about the hate mail, Rob. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. Uh, that, that, that's the Savadsky view on that one. Um, but again, Rodney, that's something. this is something you feel passionate about, obviously, from monitoring the stories how would some of these stories that we've seen benefit from just a tweak in, you know, who's on the truck? One of the things that stands out to me as a glaring obvious fact is that the news has not reported on anyone dying or having an untoward outcome because the response times in their community had fallen beyond some uh, contractual obligation. Uh, so I would, I think I would start with that, that if, if the response times were a problem, we would start hearing stories of, uh, people having bad outcomes from a response. We're just not seeing that we have, uh, 113 percent of the, of the topics had some kind of response time uh, comment associated with it, but I cannot recall out of any of those stories, anyone complaining about, well, I didn't get an ambulance on time. 
uh, because they were there in nine minutes instead of seven. Now, we have seen on a rare occasion where there has been an enormous delay of an hour, but that's a rarity. And that's because of something else that there was in one case I can remember of a, a, a bridge was blocked off into an island and they just couldn't get there. But that's that's a whole different topic than just complaining that your ambulance didn't get there within a contractually obligated time. Excellent. So in other words, there's no evidence to support that. I'm going to give you a quick robism, Matt, before I come to you. Of course, I've, I've been saying for years, literally decades, in fact, I've been doing this for decades, that there's a perverse incentive about response time, right? So, you know, if you have the target of eight minutes, 59, you arrive on time and the patient dies, that's a success. If you arrive in 901 and the patient lives, that's a failure. That's absolute garbage, Matt. It's ridiculous. And, you know, to Rodney's point, there's some articles in the log that talks a lot about what's happening in Charlotte and, and hats off to AIM High member Medic and JP Peterson, where they were pretty bold. And they said, you know what? We need to reduce our subsidy. We need to reduce a lot of the things that we're doing and blah, blah, blah. And they went to a 60 minute response time for low acuity 911 calls. And last time I spoke with JP about this, he said that they've done 21,000, 21,000 911 calls with a response time of one hour or greater. And they've gotten exactly zero response time complaints because they tell the caller, hey, we, we care about you. It's important. We're, we're going to get there. You're not as high priority as some of our other calls. So we anticipate to have an ambulance there within the hour. And when you tell the person that and you've set the expectations and the person knows that they've got a twisted ankle or a knee pain for three weeks, whatever it is, and you're there within the hour, they're happy. And they're good to go, no complaints. They're now ramping that up to 90 minutes. And what they've done is they've truly changed their system delivery, reduced their cost, increased the utilization of their paramedics to make them better paramedics, increased the utilization of EMTs to make them better EMTs. Everybody wins. That's great. Uh, before we carry on, uh, if you've just joined us or you fast forwarded to this point, uh, we're talking about a year in review, 2023, and we're using as the vehicle for that the uh, AAA and the AIM High uh, news tracker, which the, the link will be in the show notes. It's not just for us. It's actually for everybody. And as you may have heard that Matt uses this um, ferociously to brief uh, those that uh, need to be briefed, which is pretty much anybody that isn't an EMS needs to understand what we're doing. Um, but of course, there are some other tabs. I'm just going to switch tabs for the minute and talk about some of the things that uh, we're also we also started to monitor, certainly in the last six months, and that's about ambulance operation and uh, some things that are dear to my heart. We've we started to look at ambulance crashes. Now, NHTSA produced an amazing report. Again, we'll put that link in the show notes that looked at ambulance uh, crashes, in intersections, lights and sirens, etc. Um, but it went up to, I think, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And of course, the data stopped because obviously you have to stop, collate it and write the report. We carried on logging that and uh, to see that, you know, there isn't a week, sadly, goes by that an ambulance doesn't have some sort of a crash, usually involving an intersection. And uh, there is a, 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 a look at the video if you're watching on YouTube, uh, the ambulance that comes through the intersection, you can see they don't clear it. And actually they hit the school bus and the car and there's now 15 more people on the way to hospital. And so, you know, there's some stories there. And this is heresy. Are you ready? It's heresy at Christmas. But here we go that, you know, if you're not the ambulance driver, who is? Because somebody has to be responsible for the safe command, control, navigation and pointing 
of that vehicle from the point of origin to the point of call without having a crash in the middle. And we start, and sadly, we're seeing that. And it's and it's it's something that we can actually work to avoid. Agreed. Look, I think there are a couple of things there. What Matt and his crew have done about getting the reduction in the nine one one response or the lights and siren response uh, that starts right off the bat. That if you can eliminate those responses, you've eliminated that chance unless someone uh, runs the red light on your end. The other side of that is I'm not sure what we have going on with driver training across the country. Uh, we, it's, it's clear um, that um, it's almost like a video game and, oh, I can just reset. Oh, I crashed, you know, the eye racing. If you follow any of that, I just get a new car if I hit the wall and it's almost like it's that mentality. And I'm not sure what's causing that. Um, I know in our operations, we have a lot of young drivers. And and I'm not blaming them for it, but I'm not sure what their level of experience is. And, and I, you know, the, the staffing pressures to you can't have someone driving for six months. Now you've got to put them on the truck because you need to go get to the next call. So there's a lot of pressure on that. But these intersection accidents have got to stop. We're, this is and I was appalled at that that video that you uh, referenced, Rob, when the last line on that article said, or remind the public to yield to the red light or to emergency vehicles. Well, you have to give them the opportunity to stop and notice you're there. You can't just bolt on through this. This is real. This is not being protective of the community at all. It's just terrible. Yeah. There was a um, quote from Dr. Clausen in a news story that was done in Minnesota, Minneapolis. I love his quote. He says, there is no evidence that using red lights and siren have saved more lives than they've taken. That's profound and it's true. Um, And I don't think we can argue with that. And of course, we must also shout out to the work that uh, I know you've been doing, Matt, the work that uh, NEMSCO has been doing. Uh, Obviously, we've got uh, NAMSP coming up in January in uh, in Austin. And I know there'll be some some amazing posters that that, that goes goes with this and supports some of the work that's been going on. Obviously, Dr. Cooper's et al um, have worked very, very hard on that. And we should acknowledge that. Um, the other ambulance category, uh, which I just roll my eyes at, and I know you do too, Rodney, and you're going to in a second, Matt, is that every week in this great country, an ambulance is stolen either from hospital or from scene. That's avoidable. Completely avoidable. Uh, for, I don't know what the cost would be today, $120 per vehicle, maybe. And you can stop that. And oftentimes those Stolen vehicles end up in a crash where somebody is is seriously injured or killed. It's it's really remarkable that those devices are not installed in all vehicles. I just yeah. it's if 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 you're a CAS standard organization, I think you'll find it's a standard and a requirement. Um, but also, you know, those stolen vehicles do end up in police chases. You see stories where spike strips have to be deployed. Um, the vehicle crashes into the last. Uh, most bizarre story, of course, was the ambulance was stolen and crashed in the police station parking lot. <laughs> in the sheriff's you, office. You couldn't, you couldn't make it up. But the point being is that there's many other people, pedestrians, obviously our colleagues in law enforcement, have to get involved in the chase, the pursuit. And it's as simple as just immobilizing the vehicle in the first place. Dare I say, lock it up before you go away. We know sometimes in an emergency you can't. 
But if the truck's sitting at hospital and it's not immobilized and a patient, and, and again, I'm generalizing, but actually the stories back me up, a patient comes out, gets in the ambulance and drives off, we could avoid that. Well, we can, and it's, it's human behavior and it's, it's really attention to detail. Um, and, you know, when we go through our CAS reaccreditation every year, the operations team at MedStar starts about 30 to 45 days before our CAS inspection, drilling, locking vehicles on the scene of a call. And Rodney's right. We've got them. They're remotes. Locks the entire truck, including the compartments. Um, and all it takes is a push of a button. But yet people won't do it because they're lazy. And we don't reinforce that they have to do it. We don't discipline them for doing it, for not doing it. And we, we need to really make sure that we're doing a just culture on every one of those. And if it's not a system issue and it's a willful act by the, by the team member, we need to act on it to just say that's our new, we, we expect you to lock the truck because it's safer for everybody. And if for no other reason, you can't replace your truck. <laughs> the supply chain has, has wrecked yeah. your ability to go get a new chassis. There's so, another category we should have put in there, right, Rodney? Yeah. In fact, yeah. We, there are so many stories, and, and we're not logging that one because we kind of accept it's a thing, right? That yeah. you, know, you see story A saying local authority authorizes purchase of a new ambulance. I then smirk and go, ha, 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 when? Well, and Rob knows this is a U.S. issue, right? This is not an international issue. It's it's a it's a U.S. market driven shortage. It's not an, it's not an international shortage. Indeed, Matt and I have been on with our colleagues in the UK. Um, and but that said, a lot of these. Let's just actually. You mentioned you mentioned it. it. We have some seriously international issues going on though. It's not not just the U.S. for things like hospital delay. It's the U.K. It's Australia. It's New Zealand. Um, you know, we, you see these stories happening. Um, the U.K. at the moment uh, and the colleagues are sending me stories and it is the case of the ambulance was an hour and the patient did die and these are stories are coming to the fore um now we don't see so many of those but it's just a matter of time if you know things don't change let's say um and of course that then brings us back into rurality we've seen a lot of stories about ambulance deserts we've seen a lot of stories about the lack of availability of resources in you know remote rural tribal areas and that's going to be where, you know, it's. The, I think that first domino has already fallen, and we're seeing that in the news. Agreed. Right. And, it, and it's not in just the rural part of America. It's, it's uh, Alabama had some, some really interesting stories, and they just can't get the providers in there. And, you know, but oddly enough, I haven't, I can't recall a story out of Montana that is, has uh, really complained about it. Wyoming has, has had some serious challenges. So uh, go ahead, Matt. Um, yeah, the rural communities are the canary in the coal mine, right? <laughs> That's where this is happening first. And, um, and there was a story in Wyoming, and I think there was one in Montana in the lot, and I talked about the local volunteer down to one volunteer. They couldn't do it. They closed. And, and then the senator from Montana gets involved, gets on the phone, calls me and says, what do we do now? So, well, you should have called three years ago. <laughs> it's like, you know, but now that we have your attention, maybe a critical access ambulance designation out of the critical access hospital in that county that is cost plus based reimbursed might help you. So we're working on that. It's like, wow. Before we round out, uh, and Rodney, this is a category that you've been monitoring very, very closely, and that's violence against our providers. And of course, we are seeing those stories too. And we just we have to be aware of them 
Well, they're, they're on the rise. This this violence against our providers is is uh, has a major uptick. Um, I'm not sure if it's a breakdown in society that's causing that, or if our staff are not recognizing what's going on. I know in one of our operations, we had someone got punched the other day, but it was, sounds like probably a patient had uh, was recovering from a seizure and was post tickle and woke up woke up confused. So. You know, there's a lot of a lot going on behind that, but um, uh, the violence is is on the on the rise, and we have to do something to, uh, to further recognize that and prepare our staff. I I saw a news story uh, where the police department was their funding was being cut, and they said, "Well, that's going to impact your medical care because we can't go on these calls where EMS." Uh, is needing our assistance. And that was sort of the cudgel I think they were using to, to gather some additional funding, but it's that's true. Absolutely. And again, you know, just taking it out to an international level, I think it's the Metropolitan Police oh. in London, UK, issued warning and notice that they're not going to respond to behavioral health, mental health care um, issues anymore because it's a medical issue, not a police one. Um, that's just probably a matter of time before that happens wholesale here as well, I suspect. So we well, you know, so, <clears throat> go ahead, Matt. It's interesting when we talk about system design changes. So we, in working in collaboration with our local police departments, they were having issues getting to low acuity, low acuity calls, which in their world, we respond to a site. We stage for PD to declare the scene safe before we go in. For PD, that's a low acuity call. And they're holding those calls. And we were staging for an hour or longer waiting for PD to clear us in. So we worked a deal with PD. Hey, if you're not there in 15 minutes, we're going to clear extended staging protocol. When you guys get there, if you need us, call us back. Do you know how many people have died because of that? No. Do you know how many resources we put back in the system? A ton. And most of the time, we're not even called back. <laughs> so why yeah. are we going? Yeah. I have no issue with that apart from ton isn't a unit of data, but we'll move on from that. Um, before we come to an end, though, of course, we're here and we're talking <clears> about the AIM High AAA media log. It is freely available to everybody. And uh, breaking news, we're actually re we're, we're revamping it and giving a, a, a nice front end uh, to start us off in 2024 so more people can use it as a resource. Um, armed with that, Matt, what should people do? Become educated. Look, find out what's happening in the rest of the country. That it's not just you. Refer to the log regularly. It's posted once a week, and it's going to have a great new interface that Rob and the team are working on. Um, but you can learn a lot. We've learned a lot about how communities are, are responding to these gaps in service and innovative ways that people are doing things. You know, there was a great story in there uh, in the log about Colorado Springs Fire Department. And, you know, I love Dr. Bronski and the team out in Colorado Springs and. You know, they decided, hey, we're going to stop responding in ambulance to these low acuity calls. We're going to send a community paramedic only when they're available. So it could be an hour, it could be whatever. And they get a Congressional Fire Services Institute award for innovation. Okay, so clearly that's an innovation that the federal government and the fire service thinks is the next big thing. Well, introduce it in your community and use that from the log. Use that news story to say, Here, here's... You know, this is not unique. We're not just, you know, doing things that are her that are heresy. Um, these are recognized innovations that we need to do to change and improve our service delivery by 
customizing how we're going to respond to calls. That makes a ton of sense. Absolutely. Um, so what we've been doing over the year is really we want to help you out there listening, watching, tell our story to help everybody. And that's really what we're aiming to do. Um, let's get on to some final thoughts. I'll, I'll come back to you, Rodney. Again, as I say, you've been the guy behind the scenes, really the power behind our punch and collaborating, <laughs> collating stuff. But, uh, you know, what? where, where do you think we're going to go? Well, I, I guess it's going to remain to be seen. Uh, if we can get some staffing, that might be helpful. Uh, but to Matt's point on the log and its use, and as an example, in New York and in Pennsylvania and places in New York, it's not across the state, and it's not necessarily across all the state of Pennsylvania, uh, where the the communities they've they have said, well, you know what, we're gonna we're going to uh, withhold your need to pay property tax if you're a volunteer in our community, or we're going to give you a rebate if you volunteer in our community, or if you hold a first responder and you're active in your situations. And so to Matt's point, find this log, look for innovations that you might find to be able to put forth in your community to figure out how you can best be the steward for your community's resources. Because as Matt explained earlier, paramedics are, that that is a precious commodity to be able to deploy uh, when absolutely needed, and you've got to learn how to be a good steward of those resources. And I think this log is one way to help to understand what stories are out there and what Achilles heel may be lurking for you and to use it to educate your politicians. Well said, as they say in EMS, there's never nothing to do. And uh, so, uh, Matt, I'm going to give you the final thought before we close off today. Advocate for change. Uh, you know, we are... Everybody watching this webinar or watching this podcast, you guys are experts. You put a uniform on, you, you do this noble work every day. People will listen to you. Stop being timid. Stop licking your wounds. Get out in your community. Talk to your elected officials. Talk to your city managers or county administrators. Very factually, not emotionally. There will be time for emotions. But give them the facts and let them know what it's going to take to save the to resuscitate their EMS delivery system. It doesn't matter whether you're Chicago Fire, whether you're uh, patient care logistics, whether you're MedStar, whether it doesn't matter. Everybody is experiencing the same issue. There's no shame in admitting it. Let's work together to advocate for change to make it better. We couldn't say fairer than that. Thank you so much, Matt. So Matt and Rodney, uh, thank you very much for joining me on this last episode of EMS One Stop in 2023. Uh, I know I will get you back in 2024. If all else fails, we'll do this again in 12 months time, but we'll talk before then. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to monitor. Um, hopefully you can use this free good from AIM High and uh, AAA to help you in your communities. Uh, please do that. And so with that, uh, I've been Rob Lawrence. My guests have been uh, Matt Zabadsky and Rodney Dyke. And before I go, I'd also like to thank the voice of my ad. And if you listen to the, uh, the mid-show read every time, that's actually the voice of Jim Dudley. And Jim is the host of Policing Matters over on Police One, who's got the smoothest voice in the world, which is why I asked him to record my mid-show read. I've never credited him before, so I'm doing it now. So, Jim, thanks, mate. And for those uh, of the police persuasion, make sure you listen to Policing Matters over on Police One. So that's been EMS One Stop. That was 2023. Those were my guests. Look forward to next year. Happy holidays. And until next time, bye for now.